Welcome to our kickoff for uh, lesson series. We've got several great classes going on around the building this evening. This series is about the parables of Jesus, and it'll go for six weeks. We'll do six sessions in this, and then we'll start the next series, which I can't tell you yet, but Marty's uh, made a request, so we'll probably say yes to that. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a blockbuster. So we're going to talk about the parables. Let me say a prayer for us, and we'll kind of dive right in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening, that we can gather to study your word. I pray that you'd open our hearts, your spirit would pour in the, the knowledge that you'd like us to have, and that we'd translate that into the actions that you would love to see in our lives. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can turn ahead if you've got your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. That's where we will be. I'll show you the verses up here, but I know a lot of people like to bring your Bibles. We like keep the lights up in here during classes so you can make notes if you'd like or look in, into your Bibles. We're going to study the parables, and we're going to do it. We're not going to study all 38 parables in the New Testament, but we're going to study every category of parables. And what I mean by this is in this six weeks, we'll study more than six parables, but we'll basically cover the entire gamut of Jesus' teaching. The parables are a way to get the whole breadth of what Jesus has to say, whether it's about social structures, about the end of the world, about the kingdom, about judgment, about uh, the way we're going to act in the world. He covers everything in parables. Jesus taught in a lot of different ways. He taught very directly you know, do this, don't do that, this is right, this is wrong. He taught, for example, Sermon on the Mount in very visionary ways that really confronted people. But about a third of Jesus' teaching is in these stories that we call parables. There are 38 of them, about 35% of what Jesus says in the New Testament is in the form of these stories, these parables. That's because these parables are intended to be very subversive. In fact, Jesus' message is counter-cultural. He's going to talk about the kingdom coming into the world and God turning things around in some significant way. So the message of the parable takes some time to chew on and think about, and it begins to do its work inside us, it begins to subvert some of the ideas that the world has given to us. Now, it's easy to think of the parables as stories with a moral, kind of like Aesop's fables, some of those stories you've heard and you get to the end and there's a nice little moral to the story. The parables aren't like that. The parables don't end with a, and so you should always be nice to your neighbor, or so don't bite the hand that feeds you. Those are very moralistic stories. They're not bad, but the parables are not even slightly moralistic. They don't come down to a nice little thing and say, okay, so from now on you should do this and you shouldn't do that. They're really trying to shape the way we think very subversive in what they do. The word parable means to literally to throw something down alongside. And so these stories are intended to be stories that you lay out alongside your life or reality and compare. And so these stories are going to bring us into what's called cognitive dissonance. They're going to challenge some of the ways that we think, and that's why Jesus taught in this way. Our first parable is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. This was chosen not for any particularly strategic reason, but it's a great parable for us to see how parables work, what Jesus is doing through these stories. Well, as always, and I think this is printed on your note page, you can text your questions in because we'll pause in the middle and answer some questions. I'm sure when we get to one particular part, you will have some questions. But other, otherwise, by the way, on the handout too, there's some discussion questions. We don't typically do that, but for this series I will, partly because some small groups are going to use the videos of this series, and then also just for you, for further reflection and thinking. There's some pretty modern-day kinds of questions there to say, how does this apply to what we're doing today? Well, let's talk about the rich man and Lazarus. Luke chapter 16 starts in verse 19. This comes in two scenes. It's like a little visual play. You're going to have scene one, scene two, and then there's an interesting little epilogue at the end. Very short stories. As a matter of fact, most of these parables are very short stories. Well, here's how this one begins. There was a certain rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and he lived in luxury every day. At his gate 
was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So I'm going to stop there. This is the first scene. And in just those two simple sentences, three sentences, Jesus sets the stage and paints a vivid picture. And I'd like that to come alive for us a little bit. So I want to talk about first the rich man, and then I want to talk about Lazarus a little bit. There's some really interesting things about Lazarus we need to see before we go on. The rich man in, those, in that culture, which doesn't mean as much to us, but the fact that he's wearing purple garments means he's very rich. Purple was a very hard-to-get and very expensive dye, and it was the color of people that were very well-to-do or even royalty. It would be like today. It's that there was a certain man who had custom-made suits of silk that came from the endangered species of Chinese silkworms. You know, his suits cost $100,000 a piece. That's kind of what this is saying. And the fact that he had fine linen, that just means even his underwear cost more than your car. I mean, that's what this is trying to say, right? The linen was the tunic that they would wear underneath. I'll try to give you a feel for this in modern times. This is going to sound like a, a commercial for the Museum of Art, but it's not. But Laura and I visited an interesting display at our Museum of Art last week, and it's a Fabergé. And this is going to illustrate this point. You may have heard of Fabergé. Gustave Fabergé was kind of the jeweler to the czars. So think about in the 1800s and early 1900s, Fabergé came up with these brilliant designs using very precious stones and jewels and unbelievable craftsmanship. Fabergé made a lot of things probably best known for these Fabergé eggs. These eggs are just unbelievable miracles of design and beautifully crafted. Each one of the eggs opened up. The eggs were given, they were, like I say, they were just one thing he made, but probably the most famous because the czar would give that to family members on Easter. These are Easter eggs. In other words, it's a way to celebrate Easter, and you would open them. Each one opened, and sometimes they opened in very interesting and intricate ways, and there would be this little prize inside. Here's another example from Tsar Nicholas II, in uh, 1913, gave this to his empress, Alexandra. And you can see inside there's this beautifully crafted. The amount of jewels and the workmanship in this are just unbelievable. There are so many of these eggs, and you can see a lot of them on this display. And as we were going through, looking at the history, seeing this display, it's just overpoweringly rich and luxurious. And one of the things that really hits us and one of the things they bring out was the luxury of the lifestyle of the Tsars, the Romanovs. This is the last of them, Tsar Nicholas and his family who were killed uh, at the Russian Revolution. But during their lifetime, they lived in unbelievable luxury. In the, in the uh, display, they would have just the littlest decorations that had enough gems in it that I assure it's worth more than my house. I remember one thing in particular was a ring case. It was just a little case that you would put your ring in. This case had more diamonds on it. I'm thinking, I'd really like to see the ring if this is just the case. But the point is, their lives were just completely, their everyday lives were completely filled with luxury. And then as now, you know, you see that kind of luxury in and of itself, I'm not telling you that, okay, there's something inherently bad about that luxury, nor is this parable going to tell you, oh, there's something inherently bad. The parable is going to set up a contrast, and I want us to get a feel for it, because reading that verse 2,000 years ago, it's hard to get a picture of what we're talking about. Think this. Think that you have so many of these Fabergé eggs that they just mean almost nothing to you. That's how rich and how luxurious this parable sets this up. Rich people were as admired then as they are now. Back to the parable. Let's talk about Lazarus. Well, the contrast is this beautiful, gated mansion with somebody who lived like a czar, you know, like a king in this unbelievable luxury. And then at his gate, because he couldn't walk there, someone would lay down this beggar to beg at his gate. He was covered with sores, and he would be happy just to eat the scraps I don't know how many of you have ever been on a farm. I uh, grew up part of my life on a farm, and I remember my grandmother going out, and she would throw the scraps over the fence, 
and the, and the dogs would eat it. I mean, they would eat the scraps of this. This is what he longed for, is when you throw out the trash, I he's, I'm hope I'm near, and I'll fight with the dogs to get it. And so you see this picture of really abject poverty. A couple of interesting things about Lazarus. First of all, Lazarus is the only named character in all of Jesus' parables. All 38 parables, you'll see things like, there was a certain rich man. There was a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. But this character has a name, and it's the only one in all the parables. And so people think that's significant. Some people think it's significant because Lazarus was a real person at that time who really literally was outside the gate of a rich man, and Jesus' hearers might have known about this individual. Other people think that he has a name because, as you're going to see in just a minute, he's going to be referred to in the parable, and so he kind of needs a name. But there's another significance to this word that would have really struck the hearers about this name and about this situation, because what Jesus is setting up is this unbelievable contrast between rich, unbelievably poor, and suffering. And the name is part of that story. The word Lazarus is a short form of a Hebrew word, a Jewish name, Eleazar. We've had this lesson before in a sermon, so you're probably going to remember when I tell you Eleazar has a theophoric element in it. In other words, it's the word El, which means God in Hebrew, and Lazar, which means help. So his name, Eleazar, means God is my helper or God helps me, or God is my help. Now, stop and think about that for just a minute. That just is completely, completely at odds with this visual picture that Jesus just, just had. You probably have heard the story about the guy who had a dog. He, uh, he had three legs, he's blind in one eye, and his name was Lucky. Okay, it's that kind of a, okay, wait a minute, Jesus. Seriously? This guy's name is God Helps Me. I mean, just the irony and the contrast of that jumps out at you, and I want you to see that, that that's part of what's being said here. I also, just like with the czars, so you can get an idea of the richness and the luxury, I want you to get an idea of how they thought about Lazarus. The Jews had a theology of this. They didn't just think, poor Lazarus, poor guy, not in good health, life stinks, I'm really sorry go down to the Social Security office and see if they can help you, right? A little disability income. They thought that Lazarus' life was not worth living. The Talmud is a collection of Jewish wisdom of the rabbis. It's a commentary on the Bible. And I want to show you a little piece of the Talmud. It'll give you an idea of how they thought about it. The rabbis taught this. There are three men whose lives are not worth living. The first is he who is dependent on the table of his neighbor. In other words, you're dependent on someone else's gifts for food. The second is he whose wife dominates over him. A nagging wife. I'm just leaving that, moving on. <laughs> it's, a, it's an ancient Jewish thing, all right? I'm just saying. And the third is he who has bodily suffering. This is an interesting insight. The Talmud is uh, compiled maybe around the time of Jesus, but the teaching from the rabbis goes back several hundred years before. So I quote this to you to let you know that when the Jews saw him, their view of his life wouldn't be, oh, you poor man. Their view of his life would be, you might as well be dead because you got two of the three strikes against you. I don't know anything about Lazarus' wife, but I know that he can't feed himself. He's begging for food, and he certainly has bodily suffering. So this is how they would have seen him. So do you get a feel for kind of the contrast? In fact, the contrast in this is violent. Jesus is painting a stark, stark picture. Think the czars and the opulence in which they lived and think of a beggar who can't even carry himself around and he's just hoping that he can beat the dogs to the trash. I mean, this is the contrast. Does that make sense? That's how Jesus sets this up. That's scene one. And it begins to introduce some interesting uh, things. There's, there's kind of an almost an ironic mockery in Lazarus's name. And it starts to introduce to you just a hint of not rightness. On the one hand, 
the rich man hasn't done anything wrong. It's not like he said and he came out and he would beat Lazarus every morning. He hasn't done anything wrong. So you don't see just terrible injustice, you know, the, like the rich man stole Lazarus's wallet and now he's begging. That's not what's happening. You don't see Lazarus like, oh, you know, Lazarus just had some hard luck. We don't know what happened to him. But you sense in the contrast, something's just not quite right with this. So that's how Jesus sets up the first scene. And you begin to wonder, wonder why? Here's a great question that comes into their minds, comes into yours and mine. I wonder why God lets there be this kind of contrast. In other words, why would this happen? Why would God not take care of all of his children, all of the, these are Jews, all these Jews, take care of all of them about the same? So he sets up a little bit of dissonance in their mind. And then he moves to scene two. He says, now the time came when the beggar, Lazarus, died and the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's side. That is a euphemism for heaven. In other words, you got to go be buddies with Abraham, who's the great patriarch. So the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died, and he was buried. In hell, where the rich man was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus, interesting that he knows his name. Most commentators think this really doesn't look good for the rich man. If he knew who he was in life enough to know his name, wonder why he didn't do anything. But he says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and just touch my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Are you starting to see again an unbelievable contrast but it just got flipped upside down, didn't it? You've got Lazarus reclining in the bosom of Abraham at peace. You have the rich man saying, if he could just dip his finger in the water and touch my tongue, what did Lazarus want? If I could just get the trash that they throw out. You see what's happening? It's just been flipped upside down. For I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, my son, literally my child, Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things, but Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and nor can anyone cross over from hell to heaven to where we are. So scene two flips this upside down. And so in just a few sentences, Jesus sets up this contrast, and you get this sense of not rightness. You get this sense of irony about Lazarus' name, and in a few more sentences, he flips it around. And now they go, ah, who has God really helped? At the beginning, you think it's ironic that Lazarus' name is God is my helper, because clearly he is not. Now a few sentences later, Jesus says, and here's how the story turns out, and you go, ah, it looked like God blessed the rich man, but in actuality, it appears he has, in the end, blessed Lazarus, that he is Lazarus's helper. So this scene turns things around a little bit. This parable could have ended there, but it goes on to refine one other point. Let me move on to the third part. This is the epilogue. And so Abraham... Uh, or the rich man answered and said, well, if you can't come here and he can't dip his finger in the water, then I beg you, send Lazarus to my father's house because I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they also will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Old Testament to read. Let them listen to the scriptures. No, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they saw somebody resurrected, then they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Interesting story. What's the rich man saying? He realizes at this point that what is needed is a change of mind. This word repentance is interesting here because there's no mention of sin 
there's a mention here, however, of this is how things turn out. You lived in luxury, now you do not. You didn't help Lazarus, now you'd love for him to just touch your tongue with a cool water. And he says, go tell them to change their mind about how they're living, to change their ways, to repent. It's interesting that he knows what needs to be done. There's also an interesting irony here, because in John chapter 11, there's another person named Lazarus who dies. Jesus comes to the tomb and raises him from the dead. He walks out and he's literally raised from the dead. Interesting thing. Do you remember what happened? Did everybody then say, okay, we believe you're the Messiah? Actually, no. The rulers decided, you know what, this Lazarus guy is an embarrassment. We're going to kill him. And so they tried to kill Lazarus. I mean, stop and think about that. We killed him, Jesus raised him, well, let's kill him again. It doesn't make sense, but that's what they were going to do. And they decided we're going to kill Jesus. And so shortly after that comes the crucifixion. So it's really interesting that Abraham's response is even if they saw someone raised from the dead, if they won't listen to the scripture, the testimony of God, that won't convince them either. And it turned out to be true. He's exactly right. One final thing about this before we move on to the lessons is that last verse... If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. It's an example of what I call the time delay sayings of Jesus. You ever taken like allergy medicine and it says it's time released? You know, you take it now and it kind of little, little bit and, you know, 10 hours later you realize, hey, this stuff is working. This is one of those statements that Jesus said then that nobody got. It's like, whew, I don't know, you know, I don't understand why you put that in there, but fine. And then after Jesus' resurrection, they go, oh, now wait a minute. Remember when he said that? And so this parable comes to life after Jesus' resurrection. So there's a real irony there in this time delay saying of Jesus. That's the story. Very simple. Scene one, a great contrast. Scene two, it gets turned upside down. And then in the epilogue, it's a challenge. The rich man says, if only I could go back and talk to you, I'd say, change your mind. Think about how you're living. Make sense? What does this parable want to say? I mean, if you just stop and think about it, we just told a story, and you're like, okay, well, that's an interesting story. He's trying to say something. Exactly what is he talking about? He talks about three things in this parable. There are three things that are going to jump out. The first is he has some things to say about heaven and hell. He also has some things to say about wealth. And he has some th interesting things to say about the idea of justice. And none of these three things are what the world thinks. None of these three things are the way the Jews thought about it. None of these three things are the way our world thinks about it. This is a very subversive message. Let me start with heaven and hell, even though, I just have to tell you, I know this is going to be probably the most interesting part, that is the least important point of this parable. But I knew if we didn't talk about it, you'd be thinking about it till the end. So we're going to talk about heaven and hell first. What does this story tell us about heaven and hell? Well, actually, I know this is going to sound kind of elementary, but it says some pretty profound, simple things. First of all, Jesus believed that there was a heaven and a hell. You go, well, duh. Well, that's not so duh anymore, because even in the Christian world, heaven is a popular concept. Hell is not a popular concept. In fact, if you think about it, we kind of lean toward heaven, heaven, heaven. We don't talk much about hell. I'm not saying that we should start every week having a sermon about hell. I just want to make this observation. Jesus apparently believed there is a heaven and there is a hell. Those are real concepts. He also apparently believed that there is a judgment, meaning there is a discernment. Some people are going to go to heaven and some people are going to go to hell. I don't believe this story tells us more about how that is made, how that judgment happens. Jesus actually has several parables called judgment parables, and we'll talk about them. But for this, this purpose, that's not what he wants to talk about, but he does need to establish there is a thing called heaven and hell, and there really is going to be a division, a dividing at the end of time. Is this parable teaching that you go to heaven or hell immediately when you die? That's called the direct presence doctrine of heaven, meaning when you die, you go directly into the presence of God or you go hang out with the rich man in hell, which appears to be a place of torment in some way. He is in agony. He is not, he's really living 
the life that Lazarus lived, if you think about it. He's in agony now. Lazarus was in agony before. Is that what this parable is teaching? Some people think so. They read this parable and they say, I know this isn't what Jesus' point of the parable is, but this is teaching is that when you die, you go straight to heaven or you go straight to hell. Different traditions have thought about this differently. Um, a lot of people think that the, the people who are going to go to hell go to hell, go to Hades, which is literally what it says, and they wait there for Revelation chapter 20 to happen, the great white throne judgment, which isn't really a judgment at that point. It's just pronouncing the sentence on the people in hell and that the people that are going to go to heaven go ahead and go. Other traditions have not understood that this parable to be that specific, and they understand everybody, when they die, goes to this place called Hades, and it's not necessarily torment. It's a place of waiting, and then Revelation chapter 20 happens at some point, and everybody's emptied out of hell, and they get judged. You're going to heaven. You're not going to heaven. You're going into the lake of fire. And so that that judgment happens that way. Others see it as a kind of a sleep. The other idea is that when you die, instead of going directly to heaven or directly to hell, your soul sleeps. It's called soul sleep, kind of an idea. It comes from other passages in the New Testament that would say, actually, it appears, since there is a resurrection of the dead at the end, that when we are buried, our soul sleeps. You die, next thing you know, you, know, you open up your eyes and it's like, I don't know how long has passed. I just know that the last thing I remembered was this death, and the next thing I remember is the glory of heaven, and here's judgment day. So Christians see this heaven and hell a little differently, and they argue a little bit about what does this parable tell us about heaven and hell? What is it actually trying to tell us? Is it telling us that uh, we go directly to heaven or hell, or is that really a side part to the story of Jesus? And I'll leave that to your opinion because Christians really do and the scriptures really do allow room to, to debate that a little bit, whether we sleep or whether we go directly to heaven or directly to hell. One thing it certainly teaches is that our fates are fixed. Jesus doesn't leave any room here. Remember that whole chasm, I can't go from here to there? One of the things you learn is that heaven and hell are very distinct places and it's not like you can work your way out of hell nor can you backslide your way out of heaven. In other words, judgment is final. It do, there really is an eternal destiny. So this parable does speak to that. It doesn't speak like, well, Lazarus is going to stay here for a while, and if he doesn't act good, I'll send him down there with you. It's like, no, there, there's no going back. God's judgment is final, and this is our eternal destiny. Is this text teaching us about the nature of heaven and hell? A lot of people read this parable, and they say, hey, this is where, by the way, this is where the idea is that when you die, I don't know if you were taught this when you were little, but this is what I was taught when I was little. It scared me to death. When you die, you go straight to heaven. My mom didn't even conceive that I would go straight to hell, although having raised children of my own, remarkable restraint on her part. Not to at least mention that possibility, okay? I was not a perfect child. But she just said, when you die, you're going to go to heaven, and then you're going to look down on the earth. Okay, I don't know about you, but as I got a little older, that actually didn't sound so good. Because I don't know about you, but if I were to go to heaven, I don't want to see what you guys do when I am gone. I'm not sure that that will be a pleasant thing to see, right? But some take it from this, and that's where that idea comes, is people in heaven are looking down on us now. That comes from this story, from reading into this parable that that description is not just talking about wealth and justice, it's also telling you a lot about heaven and hell. Does that make sense? That may be stretching this parable too far. I, I think we have to be careful with parables to let them talk about what they really want to talk about, the main point. That does not mean this could not be true, but it's not the main point of the parable. But I wanted to mention that to you because this is where that idea comes from. There is another thing, though, that is certain, and this may sound a little obvious to you, but this was not obvious to the Jews, and it's not obvious to universalists today, and they're more universalists than you think, basically saying, oh, in the end, everybody goes to heaven because God's just a loving God, couldn't possibly send anybody to hell. The Jews kind of thought that too, actually. That was the prevalent idea at the time. This parable kind of shocked them a little bit, and it basically said, not all Jews go to heaven. 
and saying to us, not everybody goes to heaven. Here's another interesting teaching from the Talmud. And this is, the Jews read this today. All Israel has a share in the world to come. And then it goes on to give a few exceptions, which are kind of interesting, but that's another story for another day. All Israel has a share in the world to come. Let me tell you what that means. All Jews go to heaven. That's what the Talmud, that's what that Jewish wisdom is teaching. Based on how they read the Old Testament, they thought, you might be good, you might be bad, but at the end, because Abraham was such a good guy, all Jews go to heaven. So when Jesus told this story, and he would see, well, wait a minute, you've got not only a Jew who doesn't go to heaven, you've got a rich Jew, which meant he must have been doing something right in his life, and you're telling me that he's in hell. This parable is very subversive, very confrontational in that. In fact, okay, this is off the subject, but you'll find this really interesting. One of the teachings on the Talmud is this. It talks about the difference between Jewish souls and non-Jewish souls. And it's not as bad as it sounds, but here's the teaching. There was a doctor who had two patients. One patient came in and he had a disease and the doctor realized that he could be cured. If he would eat the right diet and take the right medicine, he could be well. And so he told that patient, he said, you must be on a very strict diet. You must eat the right things, you must do the right things, and you will be well. Second patient came in, he is also sick and the doctor realizes your illness is terminal. And so he told him, you should go eat anything you want and you should do anything that you want because you're not going to live anyway. That teaching on this basically says that's the difference between Jews and non-Jews. And that's not every Jew believes this. I'm not telling you that. I'm just telling you this is the teaching of the rabbis and it says Jews have the law of Moses, those 613 rules, because their souls are curable, right? Gentiles, we'll give you guys seven rules and see what you can do with that. Now, that is not to say that Jews believe that no Gentile could ever go to heaven, but they really thought there was a significant difference. So my point to you is, in this story, when Jesus tells the story of two Jews, one of whom's greatly admired because he's a rich man, and you've got heaven and hell and he's in hell, he's really saying something that really confronted them, that not everybody's going to heaven. What you do matters. So that's kind of what this parable wants to say about heaven and hell. Let me pause for a second in case there are any questions about that. And then I want to get to more of the core of what he's talking about. It's just as confrontational as what he's telling them about heaven and hell. Um, any ideas why Jesus gives us the name of, the, of Lazarus but not of the rich man? Yeah, why the name of Lazarus and not the rich man? It's his custom to give no names. Like I said, Lazarus is the only character in all 38 parables who has a name. So people would say that's because he was a real person that they might have known, or they would say, well, the rich man's going to call him something. Hey, send Lazarus down, so we just needed to name him. Or thirdly, and I kind of favor this, is Jesus is really, really clever. Jesus is not just God. He's not just your savior. He's brilliant. I mean, this is a brilliant story. You know, you couldn't come up with this good a story. Anyway, so he gives him a name, whether he's real or not, he gives him a name that adds to the conflict. God is my helper. They're like, what? So I think that in this case, for one of those three reasons, he gives Lazarus a name. It's actually typical not to give any of the characters names. So the rich man, it would be very atypical had he named that rich man. Good question. Um, okay, a couple questions about heaven. How are people that are cremated going to be resurrected? Good question. This question does come up a lot. How about cremation? Is that okay? Are people, how are people cremated going to be in heaven? If you think about 1 Corinthians 15 and the Christian teaching of a bodily resurrection, the, the, difference here is that the body will be resurrected in is an incorruptible body. In other words, it will not be this one. Now, I can't tell you what will look like, etc. You can draw whatever conclusions you want, but I will tell you that this body will look like Jesus. The scripture tells us that. It will be different. You know, Jesus literally could do things that, that didn't seem natural to us. 
He existed on a spiritual realm as well as a physical realm. That's the kind of body that we will have. So our soul is reconstituted in this resurrection body, and it's not this body. So whether we're cremated or, God forbid, bodies lost or in war, things happen, that's not an obstacle to God's ability to resurrect us because this corrupt body won't be the one we're resurrected in. In fact, Paul talks about it. This body, think of it as a seed, and the seed goes away, but it gives birth to a beautiful plant. That's the resurrection body. So really what happens to our mortal bodies does not inhibit God's ability to give us this glorious body. If he made us from dust to begin with, he will certainly constitute the body that he wants us to have. Um, is hell eternal, or do those who go just burn up? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Do you burn up in hell, or is it eternal? Um, this is an interesting subject, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in one of the parables that probably addresses it a little more directly. But the short answer at this point is, hell actually gets thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation. In other words, death and hell themselves get destroyed. Hell is typically spoken of, I want to be careful what I say because I want to go into this in a little more detail, but Jesus speaks of hell as something that is eternal because you and I are eternal beings. Now there are people who understand, they'll, they'll think of hell, there are Christians who want to think of hell as extinction. In other words, you go away, you don't suffer forever. The main reason for thinking that is not particularly scriptural, but simply that some people have a problem with a God who would let you uh, be in hell forever. Nobody seems to have a problem with a God who will let you be in heaven forever, but we kind of have a problem with being in hell forever. That's usually what drives that, but some Christians think that you burn up. Okay, that's a good way of saying it. So you end up burning up and you're gone. But Jesus' teaching seems to imply that we are eternal, that our destiny is eternal. Now, does that mean that you are in torment for the rest of your life? We'll talk about that more later. But generally speaking, Jesus speaks of it as though we are eternal beings. Good question. Okay. Um, you said uh, earlier in another lesson that in the afterlife, souls will have the ability to choose whether they sin or not. I knew that was going to come back to haunt me. <laughs> but this parable is saying that after judgment, that judgment is final. So how do you reconcile those two ideas? <laughs> okay, I regret ever having uh, mentioned that to you at this point. Okay, let me just hit that really lightly. Here's what I said. Some Christians think that in heaven, it, there, and this is true, and I completely agree with this, that there will be peace, there will be unity, we'll be united with God, and that the idea of sin is not possible in heaven. As a matter of academic interest, I merely pointed out, so let me just clear the record, that sin has happened in heaven before. Think Satan. I am not, however, intending to tell you that it is my belief that poor Lazarus here could stub his toe and say something really bad, and boom, he's gone, okay? I do agree with that. So my observation was simply that this may not be, what I really am trying to say to you is, is heaven, the point I'm really trying to make is that heaven is not this place of you sit there and you are bored playing a harp, you know, and doing this. Heaven is a place of adventure. The angels are doing adventurous stuff up there. There's all kinds of adventure going on. And I think we too will have an adventure. That's actually my main point. And so on my tombstone, would you carve that and don't carve the you can sin in heaven thing, okay? Just, I don't want to be remembered for that. Okay. Is the lesson here um, not only about wealth, but also really about the lack thereof or poverty? Yeah, let's talk about that, and I'm going to go ahead and move into the second lesson, because the second lesson is about wealth, but not necessarily what you think. Let's think about what this parable says about money. It's really a, ra Jesus is going to say something radical here. It is not radical to say money bad, poverty good. That is not what Jesus has ever taught. He has some interesting things to say about wealth, but let's let him say what he wants to say. That is not what he wants to say about wealth. There is nowhere in here if you think about it, that it says the rich man is inherently bad because he was rich. 
nor is there anything in here that says Lazarus is inherently a good guy because he's poor and suffering. That's not actually the point. The point is things aren't always as they seem and things don't always turn out the way you think they're going to turn out. Here's what the scripture wants to say about wealth. It says this, being rich does not make us righteous, right? Because the Jews thought he's a rich guy. God must like him. Jesus said, well, let me tell you scene two. He ends up in hell. And they're going, whoa, wait a minute. You just challenged our thinking. We admire rich people. We do too, by the way. And so you just challenged my thinking. What did you just say? He just said, being rich doesn't mean you're righteous. Being rich doesn't mean you're necessarily blessed, even though they thought so, and sometimes we think so. Jesus said, the point of this parable is, that's not necessarily so. Well, on the other hand, is it saying that you can't possibly go to heaven? This story could not have ended another way? That's not in the text. If we read that, we'll have to read it somewhere else. It's certainly not in this text. But there is a warning. I mean, you really can't read this without going, okay, wait a minute. This, this money thing's got something to do with this story. It does, and the scripture talks about it a lot. But I want you to see what Jesus, I'm going to read you a passage from Paul, then a passage from Jesus. What do they actually want to say about wealth? And this is going to give us our clue about the rich man. Paul says this, command those who are rich in the present world, guys like the rich man, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Why not? Remember the parable? Wealth is no guarantee of righteousness. Fair enough. Don't put your hope in your wealth, which is so uncertain, but put your hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's also kind of ironic. Oh, really, Paul? Remember Lazarus? God helps me. Doesn't look like God provided for him. And Jesus said, you need to hear the rest of the story. That's what this parable is saying. Command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Now we're starting to see an issue with the rich man, aren't we? It's not the fact that he had money. What Paul says, command them to be generous, willing to share, to store up riches in heaven with their good deeds. In this way, they will lay up treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age. Rich man, when he was in hell, what did he say? Go warn my brothers to change their ways. What did he say? He's saying, go warn them. You need some treasures now, not the luxury of your present life. He's going to say what Paul's saying. You need to invest. Invest that in good deeds. Lay up treasure in the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that's truly life. Jesus says same thing. This is where Paul gets it. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. It does not say this. By the way, treasures are really bad. You should have no treasures on earth. It says do not store those things up. Those things only last while you're here. That's exactly the story of the rich man, isn't it? Luxurious life afterwards, his luxury, his riches, they mean nothing. He says, moth and rust destroy, thieves will steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where that does not happen. Thieves don't break in. Where your treasure is, there's your heart also. There's the issue with the rich man. The issue is, do we trust in our wealth? And Jesus is blatantly saying, that will not work for you. Scene two, it does not help. Your wealth cannot guarantee you righteousness. And the second thing is, is wealth is a gift to be used to store up treasures in heaven. It's a totally different story here, by the way. If you've got rich man, goes out, says, Lazarus, come in. Picks him up, takes him in, gets a doctor, feeds him a little bit, helps him get back on his feet, gets him a job, and off he goes. Does this parable end the same way? Likely not, does it? The teaching around wealth is not that it's inherently good or bad. The teaching is, is do not assume that it translates to righteousness. It's a challenge for us. We need to basically see wealth, Jesus is saying, as a tool that can be used and invested in eternal purposes. The Romanovs, the czars, use their wealth up to live in luxury now. This rich man consumed all of his wealth to live in luxury now. And Jesus said, the end of that path is not luxury. He's saying instead, take that and invest it in things that last forever. That's the cautionary tale about wealth. 
And I think it's a caution for us. And it's not just a caution, it's a teaching. Our culture values wealth. Our culture says this is an inherently good thing. Jesus says this is a good thing to the extent that you do not put your hope in that. And it's an inherently good thing to the extent that you share, that you use, that you store up good deeds. Does that make sense? So Christianity is not down on wealth. Jesus is not, and this is going to make you happy because you wouldn't vote for him otherwise, he's not saying, I'm a socialist, wealth distribution kind of guy. That's not something Jesus ever did or Jesus ever taught because Jesus isn't even, and here's the interesting thing, is he commanding you here and saying, therefore, don't keep more than 10% of what you make, you better give away 90%. There's no imposition. What's this parable saying? It's basically saying, I'd like to get your heart. Because here's the interesting thing. Does Jesus ever tell you in this story, well, how much did the rich man need to do to get to heaven? You will never find that answer in the New Testament. It's the wrong question. He said the rich man's heart was fixed on his wealth. It was fixed on himself. Well, how much does he have to give away? New Testament does not tell you that. New Testament says the key is to invest. You and I are rich by the world's standards. And I don't say this to say, well, we should feel guilty or we should be worried. I simply say, he's speaking to us too. He's saying, I don't have a rule for you. I'm not going to make you redistribute your wealth. I just want to say, think about eternity. Use your gifts to invest in eternity because he cares for us. That's what he has to say about wealth. Final thing is justice. This parable has some interesting things to say about justice. This is a great little illustration from a thousand-year-old uh, Bible. And you see three scenes. The first scene you see on earth. Second scene, you see Lazarus in heaven. Third scene, you see a very pictorial, scary view of hell. But this gets to the idea of justice. This parable is a comfort to everybody who feels like they're upside down. And that doesn't just mean Lazarus, the poor guy. That's you and me too. There are times in our lives when we feel like things are upside down. I read this parable and I think, God, I don't understand why you gave Lazarus such a hard way to go. But by the end of the parable, I realize, but you love him, you took care of him, and Romans 8.28 is true. In the end, you worked all things for good, and he is eternally happy. That's what that parable is saying. It's a comfort to us. You and I live in times, too, that are kind of upside down. God, why cancer? Why tragedy? Why did I lose my job? Why did these things happen to me? This parable is saying something profound to you and me. It says God can be trusted to write things in the world. Jesus says it may be in heaven. It may not. My experience is it typically is not. But Jesus says, it may be in heaven, but God has this eternal perspective, and this is your life, and that's heaven. He says, if he does not do it before, you can be sure he will. In other words, God will set things right. The culture has a real problem with difficulties and suffering in life. If you're suffering, in the, in the culture's view, Lazarus is a loser. The Jews thought he's a loser Two counts out of three, his life is not worth living. Christians look at that and say, we don't know the end of this story. And you know, I don't know about you, but that is a powerful message to you and me in the middle of our difficulties. We do not know the end of the story. What is Jesus saying in this parable? At this most basic fundamental level, he says, trust me, in the end of the story, you are in Abraham's bosom. You are in peace. Lazarus isn't up there complaining, hey, Abraham, what's up with the suffering in my life? He's like, I have no complaints. And that's what heaven is like. Does that make sense? That's a very profound message Jesus is saying. He says, do you trust me that in the end I can make everything right? The other thing is Jesus teaches this with absolute certainty. In other words, the way this turns out, stop and think. This is going to sound really elementary to you, but it's very, actually pretty profound. In this story, the way this turns out is completely up to God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Completely up to God. There is nothing in Lazarus's condition that can keep God from putting him in heaven. See, I don't think of Lazarus as just the poor, suffering guy. Call me a cynic. 
Here's my view of Lazarus. Here's what happened to Lazarus. Lazarus had 2.3 children. He was a coach of his kid's soccer team, married to a nice wife. Lazarus broke the law, got sent to prison. Wife left him. Kids don't want to have anything to do with him. Came out and had a really significant drug habit. Got into meth. This is really tragic. Ends up on the street, loses everything he has. He's got sores and he's living with the dog. And Lazarus has caused his entire life to fall apart. Yeah, I know, you're thinking, boy, you're an optimist, aren't you? My point is, it, here, here's my point, and I hope this isn't, uh, I'm, I'm articulating this well. That does not matter in this story. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is nothing that you can do that is so bad that Jesus cannot make it turn around. That's huge. The two powerful messages here are simply this. God can make things right no matter what you think and no matter how your life goes. And there is nothing you can goof up so badly that he cannot make it right. Does that make sense? If you think of Lazarus as just the poor guy who never did anything wrong, he deserves heaven. I think of Lazarus as a guy who probably ought to have been in hell except that Jesus made it right. Does that make sense? That's the point of this parable. And it's really profound. It's a warning not to put our hope in wealth or to equate that with righteousness. It says, what do you want to do with those things? Invest them. Eternity is far more. But at its most basic level, it's confronting the world system that basically says, despite what things appear, you need to see the end of the story because God is able to make it right. And no matter what you have done, they thought Lazarus deserved what he got. You did that, you deserve it. No matter what you have done, God's power is able to turn that upside down and make that right. And I don't know about you, but this is one of my favorite parables because of that message. On the surface, it sounds like it's just a story about bad rich guy, really good poor guy. You've lived enough life to know that. Not all rich people are evil and not all poor people are good. The point of this message is God is able to set everything right. Okay? That's what I want you to take through this week is the confidence to know God is able to set everything right in your life put your trust in him, he will make it right. And you may look at yourself and say, but Terry, you don't know what I have done. We don't know what Lazarus did. And Jesus said, I can overcome all of that. I want you to live a life of hope. I want you to live a life of confidence this week, knowing that with absolute certainty that God can make things right. And then next week, we're going to talk about the absolute key idea that Jesus taught. And that is about the kingdom what did he mean, and what does it have to do with us? But for this week at least, be confident. See you guys next week.